Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the BQE desperately needs repairs, and a state assembly member will tell us how soon we can expect them. And helping Brooklyn youth deal with gun violence. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Ashley Ford. Now, New York State doesn't have the death penalty. That's good. But it's still legal in 31 states. Most don't carry it out, but some some still do, like Texas, Ohio, Florida, Alabama, and Oklahoma. In fact, Alabama just had a botched execution last month. They couldn't find a suitable vein in which to inject the lethal drugs. They tried, in vain, excuse the pun, for several hours, leaving the inmate a bloody mess, according to his lawyers. But finding a vein isn't the biggest problem for executioners. It's finding the drugs. Since states have decided the most humane way of executing a human is by lethal injection, the fatal concoction has involved a cocktail of three drugs. But one of the essential drugs, the one that renders the condemned unconscious, has been in short supply. Why? Well, that's one good thing about capitalism. When death penalty opponents raised awareness that the drugs of certain pharmaceutical companies were being used in executions, those companies decided it wasn't very good PR and wasn't good for overall sales of their other products, so they banned the drugs for this use. But so bloodthirsty were some states, they went about importing these drugs on the black market from shady pharmacies as far away as India, or having secretive compounding pharmacies in the U.S. manufacture the drugs for them. Other states decided to consider alternatives. Maybe let's go back to firing squads or electric chairs, since those worked so well in the past. But others stayed executions until they could find a suitable alternative to the drugs, a seemingly Manhattan Project-like endeavor for states like Oklahoma. And now comes news that they're tired of waiting, and they may resume executions with nitrogen gas as the first step. But it's never been used before in such a context, which makes it human experimentation. It's probably not a surprise that I'm anti-capital punishment. It doesn't make sense to me that in a time when there have been 161 exonerations of death row inmates and tales of rampant corruption in police departments and DA's offices across the country, we would still be comfortable with the state murdering incarcerated folks. And even if I was okay with that part of it, I would still be concerned about how people die and whether or not they are afforded basic human decency right up until the end. I know people will say, what about murderers? To that I say, how I treat other humans has little to do with who they are and what they've done and everything to do with who I am. On the show today, the BQE needs some fixing and fast, but will the state be on board to expedite the process? We'll find out with a local assembly member and a community leader. And then dealing with youth violence and trauma in Brooklyn, how one doctor is trying to reduce both. But first, these things. On Sunday, Brooklyn teen Republicans demonstrated in front of the Bay Ridge office of Democratic State Assembly member Pamela Harris, chanting, lock her up. The local politician had been indicted earlier in the year on 11 counts. Charges included wire fraud, making false statements in connection to allegedly misappropriating Hurricane Sandy relief funds, and using the money for vacations and lingerie. Harris pleaded not guilty to the charges, but the demonstrators are not content to wait for the trial. They focused on her, 
As president of the teen Republicans, Batia Goldberg said, because corruption has no place in New York City and in Brooklyn. Goldberg also said that not only should Harris be put in jail, she should be banned from ever running for any elected office. Okay, okay, not necessarily a bad idea. We should consider such laws. But just so we're sure that this is an anti-corruption campaign and not a partisan attack, I'll be looking for a similar statement from Goldberg about the candidacy of Republican and former felon Michael Grimm, who represents the same part of town and is vying again for federal office. Grimm was convicted for tax fraud and lying under oath. And he also incidentally hired undocumented immigrants despite calling for tougher immigration laws. He's running in the primary against incumbent Dan Donovan to win back his old 11th congressional district seat. A Brooklyn diner recently got shut down by Google. Let me explain. According to a Forbes article, when the author looked up her local Bed-Stuy diner, one that had been around for nearly 40 years, Google marked it as permanently closed. She called and learned, thankfully, that it hadn't shut down, but it was listed as such by the website. And try as he might, the owner, more attuned to pancakes than computers, wasn't able to get the problem resolved. He couldn't find the appropriate Google number for help. But he soon learned this wasn't a Google glitch. It was apparently a hack. And the numbers for Google helplines were spam, with people on the other end saying they'd fix the problem in exchange for money or gift cards. Short story, the diner finally got its proper status restored. But the owner spent countless hours doing so, probably lost some business in the process, learned this kind of thing isn't isolated, and also learned a valuable lesson, that being virtually closed can be just as bad as being actually closed. So stick with pancakes. Coming up, our first guest. Remember we told you a while back about the 21 bridges between Atlantic Avenue and Sand Street on the BQE? That's about a mile stretch that goes through Brooklyn Heights to downtown. And the fact that those bridges and that stretch of highway need repair. And if the repair doesn't happen soon, the city will have to ban trucks from that stretch, sending them rumbling through small and already congested surface roads. Bad news, I know. But the city determined they could fast-track the construction by using a process known as design-build. The process, as with so many things in the city, requires state approval. Governor Cuomo has recently signed on, but it still has to pass the Senate. Here to talk to us in studio about this issue and how we might avoid calamity is Peter Bray, executive director of the Brooklyn Heights Association. Thank you for joining us, Peter. And via Skype from Albany, we have Joanne Simon, Assembly Member of District 52, which covers the part of town in question. Welcome to 112BK, Joanne. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, Peter, can you just tell me about this stretch of the BQE? What are the issues with it right now? Why is it in such desperate need of repair, especially in that stretch with between Atlantic Avenue and Sand Street? The uh, BQE... The section that we're talking about mm -hmm. is also known as a triple cantilever. It's a very mm -hmm. unique uh, piece of engineering because there are three different levels with uh, the eastbound and westbound lanes of the BQE. Mm -hmm. And sitting on top of that is the world-famous Brooklyn Heights Promenade mm -hmm. with its views of Lower Manhattan. It was constructed 
uh, back in the 40s. It opened in the early 50s, mm -hmm. and it's been carrying increasing numbers of traffic uh, daily. It's now up to 153,000 vehicles per day, of which about 16,000 are trucks. And wow. it's a vital link uh, for those vehicles and for a lot of those trucks to uh, destinations within the city, as well as regionally going up to New England. Right. So it has to be maintained. It's falling apart. Uh, it was built to last 50 years. It's now mm -hmm. almost 75 years old, and <laughs> so, so it's a at a critical overdue. point. Exactly. We're a little overdue is what I'm hearing for these repairs. Yes. Joanne, can I ask you really quickly, um, if it needs fixing and the Department of Transportation is on it, there are a lot of people in the city who just think, hey, it needs fixing, so let's go fix it. Why doesn't it work that way? Well, I think what you're referring to is the procurement process that the New York City has to follow. Um, New York City's procurement process would normally have a design phase. Then they would uh, decide who that who would design the, the work. The work would get designed. Then they would bid that out to somebody who would actually build it. Now, throughout the country, um, there is what we call design build, which eliminates that that you know the design, then we, we bid it out to somebody to construct. And so it would be the same contractor or the group of contractors. There was always some sort of, uh, you know, uh, group um, that would do the design and the construction planning at the same time. It saves a lot of time. In this case, it saves about two years, and those two years are very precious because, as Peter has said, this is waiting its, uh, its intended life. Uh, saves two years, and in this case, save. Uh, they estimate $113 million, which could easily be more than that. So there's a big cost savings, and we can sure use that money some other places. Um, and we need that. Um, the city will have to put the truck from the roadway if it's not done by 2026. And if they don't go to design, okay, 2026. So design build is here. Joanne, what's the controversy with design build? Because there are some people who are not on board for that process. Why? Well, I think that traditionally there have been issues about um, and whether or not this would be um, uh, not given an opportunity for more people to bid, for example, doing the, the, these jobs. So um, design build, you know, has been used by the state in a number of places, including locally in Brooklyn in the Kosciuszko Bridge. Um, and the city, uh, who is responsible enough for this stretch of the roadway, has an in, in force a very significant uh, project labor agreement. And so labor is on board. So that is not an issue uh, here at, at, when it is with the, uh, the BQE. Um, but the state needs to authorize that because it's something that is a matter of state law to authorize it. And that's really, it's about getting this happening. Uh, we have been looking at doing this. I've been advocating for this now for several years. Now we are really at a critical point where it either happens now as design builds or it doesn't happen. And I think that the immediacy of that now is true now. And that you see that in the governor's uh, support for the bill. Right. Peter, is there anything you'd like to add about design build versus design bid build because you know as someone who to be perfectly honest like I'm new to the idea of on both sides I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking well you know the bidding process you know does that 
increase competition? Does it allow for the actual best design to rise to the top or for the best contractors to get that contract? Are we losing mm -hmm. something in the process? I think as, as Joanne pointed out, that design build is something that is seeing um, increasing use throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's no question in my mind that there's a recognition that design build is the best way of getting very complicated projects uh, built, getting them built uh, more quickly, and getting them built cheaper. And I think that ultimately, as communities and as taxpayers, that's really where our interest is, mm -hmm. to see these projects done well, designed well, mm -hmm. uh, built um, as cost-effectively as, as possible so that the benefits can be delivered to the public. And that's design-build. I'm hearing all mm -hmm. of the benefits of design-build as we talk about this over-design-build-build, and yet there is still opposition, which makes me wonder, is there some political motivation behind that opposition? And how does that affect, you know, how soon we're going to see the repairs here for the BQE? Well, um, I think Joanne has better insight into Joanne, the political process. But <laughs> let me just say that uh, we spent a day in Albany last week, and we had conversations with um, a lot of uh, Joanne's colleagues, both on the uh, assembly side and on the Senate side. We met with the governor's uh, senior transportation people, and one of the things that I learned was that the legislature has authorized state agencies to use design build, but only mm. in increments of two years. And this is very unusual across the country. So I think that my sense is, is that design build is being used as a kind of a bargaining chip between mm. the legislature and the governor in order to um, get other political objectives satisfied. I think that's one of the factors here. Wow. Wow. Joanne, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that, you know, almost anything can be um, a part of a, a, of a bargaining chip in, in, in Albany. I think that uh, what we're seeing here that is, is uh, different and perhaps not as well known, and that is that um, uh, whatever those objections, uh, theoretical objections may be or, uh, you know, uh, prospective objections that, that may exist uh, more broadly. You know, I know the governor, for example, wants to uh, extend design bill to all local governments and municipalities. Uh, the reality is that uh, other areas, you know, upstate, Long Island, they have different politics, they have different labor issues, they may have uh, differences of opinion, uh, but we have this immediacy with the, with the BQA, if nothing else, and a few other projects in the city. Um, and so what I think is important for viewers to know is that this is uh, the support for design build uh, for the city, particularly for the BQE and some other um, uh, projects, is, you know, bipartisan and bicameral. Every senator in Brooklyn and Queens has signed on to support this. Uh, the bill in the Senate is carried by Senator Golden from Bay Ridge, who is a Republican, and Senator Lanza from Staten Island, who is a Republican. Um, and uh, all the other senators have signed on. Every assembly member in the corridor has signed on to this. And, and that is, you know, so again, it's bipartisan, bicameral. So there really is no um, objection that I can see mm -hmm. to doing this, except that part of this is now it's within the budget process. Now, right. there's no cost to the state for the city to do design build. Mm -hmm. 
so the, because the state's not contributing to it. Right. But the budget process is a way to hammer home other parts of, of, of policy and of uh, authority. This is basically just giving the city authority to spend its money wisely. Um, so that the budget happens when it happens. And so we're part of that mix. We're uh, feeling more confident that this will happen. Mm -hmm. But of course, until it's done, it's not done. And so that's right. why we are not resting until that happens. Is there any opposition coming from upstate? Well, you know, I we have not identified any opposition from upstate. I do know that that would be a different picture. Were this to be design build in their location, right. there might be some different opinions, right? right? But this is really just about allowing the city of New York to do the best job to make sure that when they start the design, the construction people are there with them to say, hey, you know what, looks great, but from a, you know, a building point of view, this has, has issues. Um, why don't we tweak it this way? That's kind of the beauty of design build is that the team is there together and can resolve those issues so you don't have change orders later on. You don't end right. up staying, spending money litigating those kinds of things later on. Um, right. I, I don't see anybody, I don't know of anybody upstate who is opposing the city doing that. Right. It may be that they are, but we haven't identified that. Well, if it doesn't make it into the budget, what does that mean for downtown Brooklyn? What does that mean for this already congested area? Well, I think it's going to be a disaster because the point about being in the budget, you know, we could pass this as a standalone bill mm -hmm. because, again, it doesn't cost the state anything. So that's feasible. But the, it's about timing. The city has to let an RFP to do this work now. They have to do it this spring. It's their last opportunity to be able to have that bid out mm -hmm. and start this process before we have a roadway fall off the cliff. Oof. Right? It's as simple as that. So now's the time to do it. If they right. don't do it now, they're not going to be able to do it. Peter, what are your thoughts on that? I just want to amplify what Joanne was saying. It would be a, uh, a disaster. It'd be, it'd be a catastrophe. Uh, we're talking about putting 16,000 huge trucks uh, onto our streets, and even though the city says that there are certain truck routes that they can uh, go on, we know that they're going to find any route possible to get to their destination as quickly as possible. So they're going to be on narrow Brooklyn streets. Mm -hmm. We've already seen uh, uh, examples of terrible tragedies that have occurred in our communities oh, yeah. where um, uh, people have been hurt or killed. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have that danger. We have added air pollution. And we also have these trucks um, increasing the already high rates of asthma that exist in many of the communities um, in, in Brooklyn. Right. So uh, we really have to get this done in the next few weeks so that we um, avoid this, um, this um, terrible prospect uh, that I've outlined. Well, Peter and Joanne, thank you so much for being here. I'm so sorry we've run out of time, but I really, really appreciate your time for explaining this issue that affects a lot of people, but not everybody has a firm grasp on. Hopefully, we'll have you back to talk about what it looks like when they're actually working on it. We'll be happy to come back. Thank you, Ashley. Fantastic. Thank you. impulsive, that we know. We also know that teens are more likely to experience trauma due to this impulsiveness. 
Recent stats show that teens in the city are responsible for, and victims of, shootings at an alarming and disproportionate rate. Dealing with this kind of violence, trying to short-circuit it before it erupts and deal with its aftermath, is what our next guest does, when he doesn't have his hands full in the Kings County Hospital ER. We welcome to the show Dr. Rob Gore, Executive Director of Kings Against Violence Initiative, or CAVI. Thanks for coming on One oh, Thanks TV. for having me. Can you just explain to me really quickly what CAVI is? So CAVI itself is, we're a violence intervention and, pro and prevention program that's hospital, school, and community-based, mm -hmm. but uh, if you were to really kind of narrow it down to what we are, we are a safe space. And the goal is to make sure that we can keep young people safe by providing opportunities that um, help take them out of the streets and help provide resources to help get them to that next level. And, you know, when you look at violence and trauma and why it happens and why certain communities are more marginalized than others, it, it really boils down to resources, the mm -hmm. haves and the have-nots. And when you're in a position and, you, you know, ultimately, like, our, our goal is to really survive and, you know, mm -hmm. across the planet, you know, people uh, want to survive. But if you don't have basic needs like food, clothing, shelter, and security, that becomes compromised. And when your resources become compromised, how you deal with day-to-day -day situations uh, also takes a turn. And We call that survival mode. Survival mode is key in these instances. And we want to make sure that we help equip young people with tools that are going to allow them to move to that next level beyond survival mode. Tell me about the temper coolers. Um, because I know that that's something that you guys do where you have someone sort of, you know, ease when something happens to someone, when there's an assault, um, when there's a shooting, when there's some violence, you have someone go have a conversation with the person trying to prevent retaliation. Can you talk to me about how much violence is actually retaliation for something that happened before? Right, so um, like if you just look at uh, homicide stats and violence stats, if somebody's been shot before, that rate of re-injury is as high as 45, 50% within five years after that initial trauma. Wow. And the homicide rate is as high as 20% within five years after that initial trauma. So you're dealing with large numbers. And, you know, 40, you know, look at how many people have been affected by Ebola in the United States. How many people have affect, infected with the flu virus? And then you look at, you know, what numbers people have as far as getting injured and then the likelihood of them having them re-injured again within five years. And those numbers are astronomical. And the reason, when you start looking at that stuff, we're trying to reframe the conversation from looking at violence itself as this social issue, but looking at more of this uh, public health-related problem with identifiable mm. risk factors that, you know, if we, if we can intervene and prevent some of those risk factors from occurring in the first place, we can really change the tides and how violence and conflict right. um, is affecting people within our communities. But right. our numbers are high. You've got more than... 500,000 reported violent incidents involving young people between the ages of 10 and 24 around the United States. And those are only the ones that, that we see. Wow. What um, about in Brooklyn? In Brooklyn itself, here? wow. Um, our hospital itself at Kings County, I'm in both Kings County and Downstate, but Kings mm -hmm. County is the trauma center. We'll have more than a, a couple hundred gunshot wounds, and maybe more, than, maybe more than 200 gunshot wounds per year coming into the emergency department. Um, and that's not including stab wounds, that's not including blunt trauma, like if somebody's been hit with a pipe or a bat or even uh, been jumped with fists and, uh -huh. and kicked. Um, but, like, we realize it's a problem. One, you know, for me personally, this is where I live. You know, I live in right. Bed-Stuy, I grew up in Brooklyn, and, you know, 
when you're a person of color, we can't just go to other communities and, and live. It happens in our neighborhoods, where we, whether we're middle class or upper middle class. Yes. Um, it just it impacts us in ways that it doesn't always impact other people who might live in a more isolated community. Right. And, and have more choices about where they would feel comfortable relocating. Exactly. Yeah. We don't always have those options. Plus, right. some of us want to make sure that we are in positions to help rebuild and build up the community into yes. what we know it has the uh, potential to be. And so we don't want to leave and say, wow, this is somebody else's problem. Let me This move is interesting away. to me because this is something that you hear about a lot in these communities, not just with, um, with people of color, with yeah. people of certain socioeconomic status. And it's these cycles, right? right? The cycle of poverty, the cycle of abuse. There's also a cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. How do you even begin to interrupt a cycle of violence in a community. So the first thing, uh, it starts off with what is the problem that we're trying to deal with? Like, what's our, what's our ultimate goal? We know that this community may experience high levels of violence, but, mm-hmm. you know, to tell somebody to stop fighting, but fighting is your way to make sure that you stay alive, is not really realistic. And so you've got to start getting at the root cause uh, of, of, of uh, violence in the first place, looking mm-hmm. at, you know, again, having your basic needs being met. You know, those who have access to resources may not always be in the same mm-hmm. positions to engage in violent conflict compared to those who don't. Right. Uh, and so it's like social determinants of health, things like education, things like poverty, uh, eco- community economics, these are all things that tend to contribute to high cycles of violence. And I remember I gave a talk in Turkey about maybe four years ago, and I was talking with some docs who were in Istanbul, and they mm-hmm. said, we don't see violence the way that you see it in the United States, not, at least not in Istanbul. We see you know, high rates of domestic violence, but we do see those rates of violence in the border states, in the refugee camps, places where you have the haves and the have-nots, and you really like have that sharp demarcation. Right. And again, you think, think about you know, what resources mean and, and how you know, the lack of resources or have one community having access to more and one community having access to less, like how that whole thing um, plays around with conflict. How does Kavi yeah. address that? Like, yeah. that's the thing, right? That's because the, that's the whole goal right. of Kavi. How are you guys addressing that right now? All right. The first, th- first thing in terms of just establishing our core value we want to make sure we are in a position to provide opportunities for young people. Right. That's, that's, our, uh, that's one goal. The other thing is we want to make sure that people uh, live. Mm-hmm. We want, uh, vitality is important. We can't even have these other conversations about economic growth and development if we can't even get people to the point that, un- that they can understand or we can help them understand that you are important, you are valued, and you have a right to live. Yes. And so those are a couple of core things that we addressed early on. Uh, there are three different aspects of our program. We have our hospital-based intervention where we help provide uh, follow-up and uh, case management and wraparound services for people who've been shot and stabbed because they do have a high rate of recurrence. And so uh, we work with patients, we work with their families and help mm-hmm. link them up to like a lot of the psychosocial support systems that exist within the hospital corporation at you know, Kings County or downstate uh, or the surrounding community. We also do that work in conjunction with a couple of other uh, amazing community-based organizations like Man Up Incorporated out in East New York, right. SOS and Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy, uh, GMAC, uh, Gangsters Making Astronomical Community ch- uh, Changes over out in East Flatbush, mm-hmm. and even the GDLU program that's affiliated with the hospital corporation. Wow. So that's one aspect of that, making sure that patients uh, who've been affected and impacted in their families have access to resources. The second and third component are our school programming and our community programming. 
Uh, we have close to 250 young people that we work with in our school and community programs. Uh, we're based out in East Flatbush at the Wingate High School uh, Education Complex, which is the old Wingate High School uh, campus. Mm -hmm. And we're also at Eagle Academy in Brownsville providing okay. in-school programming for young people who are considered to be impacted by violence. Right. If you live in Brooklyn... Unfortunately, yeah. we're running out of time. I'm sorry, and I've, no, that's not your problem. This is just fascinating, and I want more and more people to learn about it. How do people find out more about Kavi? You can check us out at kavibrooklyn.org. That's K-A-V-I-B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N.org for more information. Mm -hmm. And if you want, we do workshops. Uh, we do trainings for community groups, educators, concerned citizens, and you just look us up and check us out and get in nice. touch with us. I hope more people do. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be back with the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, some badass women activists, and a preview of our March 21st town hall meeting called Be Heard, Me Too is Just the Beginning. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown. Shireen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSette. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leap, and Sasha Mathias. 